Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Forest for the Trees by Pastor Sean Wood. We want to see more of your glory. As we peer into your word, Lord, open our eyes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of my favourite points in scripture, and I'm going to elaborate more about why we are doing the book of Revelation. So welcome this morning to our first instalment on the book of Revelation. One of my most favourite passages of scripture is found in the book of Acts. Does anybody remember the account of the sons of Sceva? Very interesting. I'm always baffled about that. You know, here's, uh, here's the seven sons of a Jewish exorcist. So that was a thing in the first century. Uh, and they see Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they think, you know what? We'll give this a go. And so what happens is they, they find a man who's demon possessed and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we come against you. And just as before we get to the main point, uh, from, I'm from Tassie, so, you know, I like watching boxing and fights. And if you get, you know, when you're watching boxing, boxing, you're saying, oh, you know, they've got a nice right hook or a nice left hook in, or, uh, maybe. But, uh, you know, if you go into a fight with your pants on <laughs> and you leave the fight and you don't have your pants on, you lost that fight. <laughs> and what we read is the... Demon answers them and says, Paul I know. Jesus we know and Paul I've heard of. But who are you? (laughs) And it says that this man overpowered the whole seven of them. They went away naked. You lost. And my heart is that the enemy would say, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, and those guys at the rock, You've got to watch out for those guys. I want the enemy to sound a trumpet when we get up in the morning and go, that guy's heading for the prayer closet. Harold's heading for the prayer closet, both of them. You're in trouble because both of them are heading for the prayer closet. When I was in the forestry, uh, we used to plant trees and we used to fertilise trees. And to keep our guys going in between planting season, we used to do something called pruning which I believe there'll be a certain place in eternity reserved for those that have to prune for eternity. But uh, pruning was basically just to keep the guys going. And we were the new kids on the block when it came to pruning. So we got all the really lovely blocks, by the way. But a bad pruning block was when you walked in to the rows and the sun never peered through. It was that dense and, and the scrub was that thick that you couldn't see daylight, let alone follow a straight line for where your rows were going and it was enormously frustrating for the guys. They're at ground level, they're becoming frustrated, they're becoming disorientated and they're all fixated on the very small and the very immediate and the very right now. And, and what I used to do, because it was only ever patches of the coops that would be so bad, what I used to do is grab a four and a half metre ladder. We used to third prune at 6.5 metres. So we used to have to stand at the top of a four and a half metre ladder, no harness, so if the ladder goes, you're in a little bit of trouble. But we used to stand at the top of a four and a half metre ladder and I used to get up the top and guide these guys. I used to say, you know what, uh, the problem with you guys is you can't see the forest for the trees. My fear is, as we approach the book of Revelation, God bless you, my child. 
My fear is as we approach the book of Revelation that we are in danger of losing the forest for the trees. We're, we're in danger of knuckling down on incidental details and we've lost the big picture message. We've, uh, I'm going to be straight out and flat out this morning. I'm not here to agitate anybody and I'm not here to aggravate you, but I'm not here to lie to you. And we have lost the message of revelation by getting knuckled down into details that are incidental and we've lost it according to largely bad teaching. I want to be absolutely clear this morning. I don't know everything. I know that's going to shock most of you. As you're picking your jaw up off the ground, (laughs) I want to highlight this morning, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation has elements of mystery that I will never explain. And when it comes to doctrine, I need to be clear before we approach this book, I want to lay the foundation before we do. I want to be clear that when it comes to doctrine... There are essentials and there are peripherals. Essentials, there is no room for discussion. And I'll highlight some of those in a moment. Peripherals, there's room for discussion. A peripheral might be the age of the earth. Some people here pick up on when I say that God created the earth millions of years ago. Peripheral. End times, peripheral. Salvation, the identity of Christ, the operation of faith in the life of a believer, essential. No wriggle room. That is why when uh, that is why I'm very adamant when I attack prosperity gospel, etc., etc. Why? Because the operation of faith in the believer is enormously important. And if that becomes distorted, we are in grave danger. I believe by the time we finish today, you may be either you probably be pleasantly surprised. I'm not here to, uh, if you have passionate convictions this morning, pursue them. Here's what I want to say to you. Pursue them with all of your heart, but back them up with this thing here. Get into your Bible and pull it apart. And if anybody wants to come and discuss with me, don't do it on Sundays. I'm not talking sermon after Sundays. Come and talk to me during the week. More than happy to talk to anybody, discuss, uh, try and shed more light on. But what I do hope to do as we move forward is to harness the big picture message that Revelation has for the church and we've allowed it to be stolen from us and the enemy would love you to get hooked up in the incidental details and lose the big message for the church today. Let's start. Revelations chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. We'll unpack that word in a moment, but if you've got a highlighter this morning, please highlight that word. Which God gave him to show him his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Please circle that word. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. 
As we approach the book of Revelation, we're going to ask a few questions. We need to this morning. We need to ask questions like, what is the context? Uh, who wrote the book? When did they write it? And why did they write it? But let's, we have to ask the big question of, whoever John wrote it to, how would they have understood what they were reading here? And uh, I want to make it abundantly clear before we go any further this morning. The book of Revelation is not a book about end times. Before you place an ad in positions vacant, (laughs) we have to do something with the words that John uses of soon take place for the time is near. That word soon in the Greek, I've I've tore it apart. The word soon means quickly, swiftly, or as soon as is appropriate. Uh, the, The term that says there for the time is near, Jesus uses exactly the same phrase in the Greek when he says in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. What was Jesus saying when he was telling everybody the kingdom of God is at hand? The time is now. The reality is that although this book was not written to us, it has enormous applications today as we will see as we move through this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. What things possibly could John be talking about? There is strong evidence that the things John is talking about, we will see more as we go through the book of Revelation. There are strong ties between the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. But that's a story as we move our way a little bit further forward. Uh, Only, by the way, I digress for a moment, but there's only one place in Scripture where prophecy has been given and God said, seal this up because it's not for now. And that was in the book of Daniel. Only one time does God say, this is not for now, this is for the future. But what happens in Daniel chapter 2 is, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Does anybody remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue, and he doesn't understand what it means. And he has a dream where a hand, no human hand, takes a stone and throws that stone at the feet of the statue. And, and we know that that stone dashes the feet to pieces, and then From that stone, a mountain rises and Daniel interprets it. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the the head and the and the different, they're all different kingdoms, and the head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar, and then there will come a lesser kingdom. Have a listen to what Daniel says, then we'll bring it into the chapter that we're reading. Chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 44 says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. The things that John is writing about that is about to take place is there is a new king in town. The greatest event on the historical calendar is the, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that event set in motion the events that we're now talking about. There's a new king in town. The greatest political statement in the universe was the ascension of Christ. Because when Jesus ascended and sat at the right hand of the majesty on high, what happened? He said, I'm above every king. I'm above every ruler. I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're going to unpack the theme of Revelations in a moment, which will give us a little bit more light. But what is happening here is, John said, those events are coming to pass now. That stone that you read about is coming now. The last empire that we read about in that dream is an empire that is of iron and clay. And iron and clay don't mix. That iron empire was an empire that would shatter all the others. It's speaking about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire always wanted to assimilate with those that they had governed over and they had conquered. And there was no assimilation with the Jewish nation. There was this non-mixing. And to that nation, Jesus will come, dash all the earthly rulers to pieces and he will become the king. The book of Revelation, there is... Two major dates set for the book of Revelation and the book, the time that it is written is enormously important. One opinion that is offered is that the book of Revelation is written in 95 or onwards AD and that it is speaking about the fall of the Roman Empire some long time after the events that happened, Domitian and so forth. But that is based largely on a very, very scant comment made by one of the church fathers, Irenaeus. There is strong internal and external evidence that absolutely categorically points to the fact that this book was written either mid to maybe late 60s, right about the time of Caesar Nero, which is going to become enormously important by the time we finish the first chapter today. So what is the book of Revelation? How are we best to understand the book of Revelation? The first thing that we are told in verse 3 is, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. The, the book of Revelation is absolutely a prophecy. Prophecy in scripture comes in two genres. It's one genre, but it has two applications. First, first one is, it is foretelling of God's word to right now. So prophetic utterance is always thus says the Lord and it incorporates both foretelling, which is God's word for right now, as well as foretelling, which is God's word for the future. The book of Revelation has both. The book of Revelation, as we read down to verse 4, if you join me in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It is addressed to a specific audience, the seven churches in, in Asia, which means it's a letter. When you are writing a letter to somebody, it is addressed to somebody. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. The book of Revelation is a letter. It is best understood by trying to step into the shoes or look over the shoulder of those it was addressed to. How would they have best understood the book of Revelation? We will see as we work our way through that the book of Revelation is actually not linear. 
You cannot, it cannot be read as a singular sequence from beginning to end. It has a series of sets of seven. We have seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. And at the end of every one of those sevens is the triumph of God, the final judgment and the triumph of God. It cannot be read as a set of linear timeline events. It is a revelation, an unfolding and an unveiling. The most important things that we need to discover is what did John see and what did John hear? He sees through windows that are opened, doors that are opened. He hears a voice behind him. Uh, this is a letter that contains apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is its important that we grasp this as we move forward because we're going to ask the question, why? Uh, I know I did to begin with, and I began to get increasingly, increasingly have a better understanding of why, but why does God use symbolic language? Why does God appear to speak cryptically with symbols and apocalyptic language? Because apocalyptic language is symbolic language. It is, it is language that, it's like parables, metaphors and analogies. And some have said we only find that language in the book of Revelation, but it is found in Ezekiel. It is found in Joel. It is found in Isaiah. It's, it is the number one way God actually communicates. I have enormous concerns when people come to me and say, Pastor, I was talking to God the other day and he said this and this and this, like they were having a conversation with the guy down at the milk bar. That doesn't sound like God. Even in the New Testament, God has a message for one of the pillars of his church called Peter. And the message is simply this. The gospel is for the Gentiles. But how does God communicate that to Peter? He goes into a vision or a trance and he sees a sheet lowered down and animals running around everywhere. And God says, take and eat. And Peter, in his normal fashion, gets both feet in his mouth at the same time and says, I will never eat because it is unclean. And God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. He uses imagery to convey his messages. Why? Why do that? I I, I love the words of Daryl Johnson. Daryl Johnson writes a book called Discipling on the Edge. This is a quote from that book. He says, imagery hooks us deep inside. Better than just words can do. Imagery hooks us. It's kind of like when Jesus is telling the parable about the, the farmer, the kingdom of God will be like a farmer who sows seed. Why didn't Jesus just say, the kingdom of God will be like you taking the word everywhere and the results are up to me and not up to you? Because Jesus uses imagery so we can understand more about who he is and the kingdom of God. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the gate. I'm the light of the world. Pictures that hook us deep inside. My prayer is that this book would hook us deep inside. The imagery that is here would hook us and take us further on with God. Let's, let's ask the next question. We've got two questions we need to ask. What is the theme of Revelation and what is the context of Revelation before I bring this to the point today? What is the theme of Revelation? Let's read on from verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is who was and who is to come, beautiful language, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, and the ruler of kings on earth. 
To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Love that verse. And made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. There are references in Jeremiah 4 verse 13. Ezekiel 30 verse 3 all speak about coming with clouds and every reference to God coming with the clouds is a reference to national judgment. God bringing about his announced national judgment. He is coming with the clouds. Listen to what comes after that. What is the theme of Revelation? One of the major themes is judgment. Let's keep reading on. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. None will be excluded Even those who pierced him, Zechariah 12, helps us understand that. Many people say that perhaps that's the Romans. Those who pierced him in Zechariah 12 are the Jews and the Jewish nation. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What is the purpose of judgment? Repentance. The two major themes of the book of Revelation are both judgment and repentance. The latter of those we have far too readily removed from the church. What I love about the book of Revelation as we begin to progress our way through is everybody likes the book of Revelation, but what I love about it is it removes the grey out of Christianity. As you begin to really, as we all together begin to understand the message of Revelation, we will understand the message is to us today This is imminent. If you want my end times theology, I'm going to give it to you in pretty much one paragraph. My end times theology is best described as this. Jesus Christ will return. Jesus Christ, it says at the end of this book that he is coming soon. Different word is used in the Greek. It means he is coming by surprise. My end time theology is that Jesus is going to come when we do not expect it. And I hope and my prayer and I, uh, the, the thing that keeps pastors up at night is that when Jesus comes, he does not take you by surprise. We should be living this morning as if Jesus is coming back this afternoon. And if we grasp that, it will change and revolutionise how you spend your mornings. Cat out of the bag for those that weren't here on Wednesday night. Let's let a few cats out of the bag. They should be let out to run wild for the dogs to chase. A few cats out of the bag. First one is this. Uh, The locusts mentioned in the book of Revelation are not the Apache helicopters. The mark of the beast is not the vaccine. Bill Gates is not the Antichrist because that word's not in the book of Revelations, he's not going to take over the world. I don't know what his agendas are. I don't particularly care because somebody else rules the world and his name is Jesus. He's the sovereign one. We sang about him this morning. Uh, Cat out of the bag. If you're going up to heaven, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, seeing how the new heaven and the new Jerusalem come on down. Nobody knows when Jesus will return. But here's the message of this book and here's the message of Scripture. Be ready. Do what you like with Matthew chapter 24. Do what you like with that chapter, but you have to do something with the chapter 25 and the first line that says, then the kingdom of God will be like. 
What will the kingdom of God be like after Matthew 24? It'll be like ten virgins. Five foolish, five wise. The five wise ones kept their oils up to their lambs. The kingdom of God will be like servants. Their master went away, but when he came back to settle accounts. We can fight about end times until we're black and blue in the face, but you can't remove one truth. Jesus Christ is coming back and you need to be ready. What's the context of Revelation? We need to understand that before we move any further. If you were alive, it'll help us to understand the book a little bit more. If you were alive in around about 63, 64, 65 AD, the world was currently going out of control. Uh, please, if you are in Western society, if you live in the developed world, if you live in Western society, please do not tell me that you are suffering persecution as a Christian. I'm about to unpack what persecution looks like. We are beginning to experience our preferences being pushed upon. We should speak up. We should take a stand against that. But don't tell me you're persecuted. Let me kind of highlight a little bit of what persecution looks like. If you were a Christian in 64 AD, if you were a Christian in, in Nero's time when he lit fires in Rome, blamed the Christians and then said, cut all their heads off. If you were living in that time, uh, uh, Nero dies and you think, oh, thank goodness for that, right? Well, just after him, three emperors die very quickly and then Vespasian takes over and he will eventually sack Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. But he's a really nice guy, Vespasian. He loved Christians so much, he used to dip them in oil and put them on a pole and light them and use them to light the path. That's persecution. To stand up in the first century, to stand up in the 60s AD and say that Jesus Christ is Lord was culturally awkward, commercially disastrous and politically treasonous. Rome would have you crucified for saying Jesus was Lord. The greatest threat to the Christians was the pressure to change, wait for a moment, their worship. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We live in a culture today that wants to change how you worship. We live in a culture today that says you can go to church on Sundays, but don't you get that Bible out? Don't you put that scripture on your Twitter account? We might sack you from playing rugby as if that's got something to do with it all. You see, I remember going shooting with, we did a lot of shooting when I was uh, in Tasmania. We never bought meat. We used to eat what we shot. I remember going with somebody one day and and, uh, it was one of my stepfather's nephews, complete nut of goose, pull up kangaroo in the sights and uh, I said, Dom, pull the trigger, mate. And he says, he says, I'll pull him, but he said, nothing's happening. I said, take the safety off. <laughs> Here's what I love about the book of Revelation. It takes the safety off. It's Christianity on the edge. I want to live the kind of Christianity that's not safe for everybody else around you. I want to live the kind of Christianity that's not the person get, that makes your coffee in the morning. They're not safe. What do you? Can I? How can I pray for you today? Your neighbour's not safe. Your neighbour doesn't want to walk past your house because you might start a conversation about Jesus. It 
If you were in court today, charged with being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? In this day and in this age, let me tell you what they were living with. By the time John writes the book of Revelation, there are 40 major temples dedicated to the worship of Caesar. You were required, if you were able, to make your way to that temple and say Caesar is Lord and throw incense on a fire. And the Christians in that day, all they had to do, right, all they had to do was walk in the temple and say Caesar is Lord. Oh, we, we don't mean it. doesn't matter. All you had to do was say those words and everything is okay. Everybody likes you. Commercially disastrous. If you were a Christian in the first century, nobody wanted to buy anything from you. Nobody wanted, you to, nobody wanted to sell you anything and nobody would employ you. Vespasian, if you had a Roman coin from the time of Vespasian now, you would see an inscription that says Pon Max, which is short for Pontifex Maximus which is the great priest. Why? Because Caesar was considered to be the head of the state religion. It was demanded that all people worship Caesar. The pressure came upon them to change who they worshipped, how they worshipped and why they worshipped. Today we think worship is singing songs and that's a part of it, but worship is our posture of life. Abraham, Genesis 22, tells us what worship looks like. God says, you know what, I just want to make sure that that blessing I've given you hasn't taken the number one place in your heart. So what does he do? He says, take that blessing up the mountain and sacrifice it. Give it away. What's Abraham's response? Well, hang on a second, I'll just consult the elders and hold a prayer meeting. Nah, doesn't do that. He says, well, I'm going to have to pray about that, God. No, he doesn't say that. No, what he does is he gets up early the next morning. He doesn't even sleep in to see if God might change his mind. He gets up early the next morning and he says to the travelling party that is with him, me and the lad are going to worship. It was his whole life. The book of Revelation is like one big worship service. It's interjected all the way through with singing and praise and glory and honour. It's a book that exalts Christ. There was none found that could open the seals but one. All about Jesus. John finishes with... uh, He says in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation. I'm not sure what your uh, end time theology or philosophy is today, but they, or whether you are considering that a tribulation may come, but John was in the tribulation with them. John was suffering with them. John is saying, I'm on the Isle of Patmos. What am I doing on the Isle of Patmos? Well, while they're knocking off Peter and while they're beheading Paul, they put me in a boiling, a boiling vat of oil. And when it had no effect, Nero said, put him on Patmos. Get him out of my face. Persecution. Imagine today, the times you're living in now, imagine today that on your way home you hear on the radio that some guy stormed into the church, pulled Brian Houston out onto the street and shot him in the head. That's the kind of thing they were living with in those days. Why? Because Paul had just been beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. And not only was the government okay with it, they sanctioned it. Christianity and where we stand gets real all of a sudden. John says, I, John, your brother and partner, I love this 
verse here. He says, in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit. (laughs) You can put a man on Patmos, but you can't take him away from the Holy Spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. We will begin our journey through the letters to those churches next week. Put your seatbelts on, please. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. What did John see? I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Come back to that one in a moment. And in the midst... Highlight, please, that sentence. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, and if we read the description of one like the Son of Man, it is the same description we read of the Son of Man that Daniel sees in his visions. One like the Son of Man, the golden sash. Eyes like flaming fire, judgment. What's the message to the church? Uh, seeing how I'm not in the business of winning any popularity contests in recent times. What's the message to this church? The message to these churches is not everything's going to be all right in two to 3,000 years. To a suffering, persecuted church, John's got a message for them. FYI, it's about to get a little bit worse. But what hope do we draw from that? We draw hope that says... In the midst. I know we live in crazy times right now. COVID, schmovid, uh, uh, Afghanistan. Be really, I, I would be praying very hard for Afghanistan. I pray we do because uh, the Taliban hate us. And we'll stop at nothing. Uh, I shared a Facebook post which this week which said if, if you feel useless, don't ever forget that it took 20 years, trillions of dollars, four presidents to replace the Taliban with the Taliban and left billions of dollars of weapons behind. That's very concerning. Very concerning. A lot of men gave a lot of blood, sweat and tears in that country for that time. But in all the craziness that's going on, And I don't know whether we're going to be in a lockdown by the end of the week. I don't know what the government's going to do. And I don't care. I've gotten to the point now where I really don't care. I will worship God. And if you try to stop me doing that, I'm still going to worship God. I just really care about what's going on. I just want to focus on God. We can't change what the government's going to decide. We can pray for them, but we can't change what they're going to do or what they're going to decide. We can't stop the craziness. But here's the promise of God. In the midst of that, we can know his presence. Can I be absolutely 100% clear that if we, are not, if we are not fully under pursuit of the presence of God here on a Sunday, this is just another social club. What defines us is the presence of God. I'm going to ask Karen if she can come and play quietly as I bring this to a conclusion this morning. John, when he turned and saw, he saw seven golden lampstands. And lampstands in the tabernacle stood in the holy place before the presence of God. 
And the Jews understood that the light that was given off by that was a representation of the presence of God. So seven golden lampstands. How are we to understand this? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And I was challenged when I read that because I began to ask myself, and I began to ask myself of this church, what light do we give off? Today, as we have just learnt was the case for these guys, we also face pressure on our worship. And I want to tell you today, I want to stand flat-footed and look you in the eye and tell you that it is going to get worse before it gets any better. This culture is going to want to increasingly tell us how we can worship, what we can say. We also are often seduced by this world. How many, how many parents are sitting here right now and say, you know what, my kids, they, they love Jesus, they went through their teenage years, but now they've just, the world's just seduced them away. There was huge, huge pressure on the church in the first century to just give in and compromise. And there's huge pressure today to do the same. We also are challenged to compromise and to give in. And when I was reading through this, I was reminded of my favourite TV show on Discovery Channel, which is called Deadliest Catch. When it first came out, I'm thinking sharks. Turns out that wasn't the case. But the Deadliest Catch is a riveting documentary for a guy like me. But basically, it it goes through the life and times of a series of captains on the Bering Sea. Just to give you a little bit of context, the Bering Sea is the roughest stretch of water on the planet. These guys spend not weeks but months away from their family. Most of them live on mainland America. They travel up to go fishing and then you start to follow them and these guys are facing hazards every day. Working on a crab boat in the Bering Sea has the highest injury rate on the planet. You are expected to injure yourself almost every season. If pots are not falling on you, if hooks are not flying past your head, if the bloke next to you has not had enough of you and decides to punch you and throw you overboard, these guys are facing some of the most severe storms that any stretch of water sees. They are in threat constantly of the ice shelf swallowing their pots and surrounding them in. And you look at these guys crashing over waves, water belting through the windows sometimes, hours without any sleep, captains living on V-drinks and cartons of cigarettes. Breakfast of champions, right? (laughs) And you ask yourself the question, what is wrong with you people? You ask these guys and they say there's millions and millions and millions of dollars of the richest bounty the oceans on the planet offer out there. A king crab and opilia crab are the richest bounty in the oceans. What are these men saying? <laughs> bugger the waves, mate. Bugger the ice shelf. We don't care about the hazards. We value that. We will face whatever we have to face. Why? Because we value that more.
That's be tempting, right? To pull up at Dutch Harbour, Alaska, because they all leave from Dutch Harbour. And every time they show Dutch Harbour, it's this beautiful, tranquil piece of water. Hardly a ripple on the water. The greatest danger is that we want to stay in the harbour. And can I tell you that just like them, I, I, I want to ask everybody here a question this morning. Is Jesus valuable enough for you to get out of the harbour? I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm not going to lie to you today. If you step out of that harbour, the enemy is going to hit you full frontal. If you decide I'm going to stand for Jesus, if you decide I'm going to live a life and I'm going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, you've just become public enemy number one. And you're going to know ice shelves and you're going to know storms and you're going to know hazards. But his presence is worth it. The message of Revelation is Jesus is worth it. As we finish this morning, and I know the lamb roast is in the oven and the kale salad was made last night. But I want to ask everybody here, and I don't want to take up much time, but just as we're in this moment, maybe... Maybe you're in the harbour right now. Maybe it's time to set sail. Leave the safety of the harbour and chase after the presence of God. There's no crab in the harbour. As we heard this morning, narrow is the way that leads to life. I'm going to pray and if you need to come out the front, you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're going, you know what, I've never really, I've never really made a commitment for Jesus. I want to know this Jesus, I want to know his presence and we'd love to pray with you. But maybe today, as I'm praying and as we finish, I'd invite you to stand. And by standing, stand before him and say, Lord, I value your presence above everything else. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would worship you alone. Lord, we're all guilty of compromise. Lord, we're all guilty of complacency. We're all guilty of letting our boats go into idle, Lord God. And so often, Lord, we are all willing to sit in the nice, tranquil waters of the harbour. But Lord, I pray that you would take us out into the open sea. I pray for every one of us here that we would cease trying to stand everywhere and that we would stand for you. Jesus, I thank you that you're in the midst of your church. 
with all that we are facing, with all that we will face. You and your presence are in our midst. Jesus, I pray that you would become the most valuable thing in all of our lives. Forgive us that we have allowed anything else to become more valuable than you. Lord, you see every heart here this morning. I pray you'd meet us right where we're at. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.